0: Okay, we're going through Revelation chapter 12 today. Just a quick recap from last week. Uh, I won't spend too much time in it because I want to get into 12. But last week we started getting really deep into the waters of um, interpreting Scripture through the symbolic nature of prophecy and some of the things that God was sharing to John about things that would take place in the future, but not just things that are true about the future, things that are true now. And that symbolism and the metaphor and the imagery that he gave us is really powerful because it helps us as a church today see normal things that we do right now through a completely different lens. And I used some fighting war language last week to kind of stir you up on purpose. I, I talked about doing things like, man, just going into the enemy's camp and, and kicking in the devil's teeth and getting into the kingdom of darkness and you know spreading light. Those are all Metaphors for normal Christian things that we do every day. I was talking with somebody after the service about this last week. Uh, this person's a, a professional counselor, and I was talking with them about how John's use of imagery frames this person's job in a completely new way. When you're sitting there counseling someone through trauma, and you share the truth of the Word of God with them, what you're doing is sharing truth but from heaven's perspective, you're driving a wedge into the heart of the enemy's propaganda that this person has been buying for most of their life. You follow? When you evangelize to somebody at work, like literally what you're doing is you're going behind enemy lines and you're plundering his stuff. You're setting captives free through, free through the power of the message. When you pray, you're not just asking God ah, if you're in, if you're if you're if you're available, if you if you have the time. Could you consider what you're doing is you're appealing to the host of heaven's armies, right? And he's got myriads of angels at his dispatch. And so what you're doing when you're praying is not just well, you know. God in heaven, if you can... know what you're doing is you're appealing to the throne room that is over every other throne room in the world. And so when we read through um, 10, 11, 12, and we continue 13, 14, 15, 16, what we're going to see is just imagery building on itself to help us see things about the world, not in a new way, um, but with a new lens. All of this stuff is familiar. We, we understand that... Paul teaches that there, there, are, there are demonic spirits at work, even in our age. John tells us that antichrists are even at work. But there's something different about knowing that that thing is true and be given language that colors the way we're supposed to think about that on a regular basis. And so that's where we're going into Revelation chapter 12 today. Following 11, the seventh trumpet has sounded and the sky has cracked open and the temple of heaven is visible to all mankind and everyone's going, oh no, I've made a terrible mistake. All of mankind is crying out, he was God, but not in a salvation sense. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, but that doesn't mean that every person on earth will be saved. Some people will confess it too late. So that sky is cracked open at the seventh trumpet and at Revelation chapter 12, the series of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls it takes a hard break. And the reason why it takes a break is because what God is doing for John is he's giving John context for all the things that's happened before so that he understands the things that are coming next. Because we've heard that there's this sense of these three woes. There's these things that are coming on earth that ain't nobody is ready for, nobody wants, nobody, nobody is praying for, asking for, but God is going to release on the earth because in his mercy, he wants mankind to understand what it's like, what it will be like in eternity if you spend your life serving idolatry, sexual immorality, and demons here. There's going to be torment for eternity And in his mercy, he allows mankind to suffer that torment for a short period of time in the hopes that they would wake up and turn to him for his mercy. So with all that symbolism building at the end of the seventh trumpet, there is this expectation. Okay, Well, how do we get here? Why are all of the nations turning against the Lamb? why is it that the nations are, are rallying for war against god's people why are we told that god's people are going to suffer um, uh, they're going to be uh, trampled for 1260 days a period of time of tribulation why why is it that all of this stuff is happening why did, why did, why does mankind hate jesus so much it's almost like there's somebody behind the scenes pouring gasoline on top of the fire of sin in the hearts of mankind. It's almost like it's not just mankind that doesn't want God. It's almost like somebody is pushing mankind away from God. And that realization is what we discover in Revelation chapter 12. But here's the cool thing about 12. God gives John this vision in 12, and the vision is not any new information. It's not a new story. It's a story we're all familiar with, but it's told in an incredibly new way. Are you ready to read it? Let's get to Revelation chapter 12. We'll start in verse 1. I'm going to be nursing my tea throughout this, so. Revelation 12:1. It says, "A great sign appeared in heaven: a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet." and her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, and she was crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and his head's seven diadems, crowns. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne and the woman fled into the wilderness where she, was, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. All right, I told you that this was a familiar story, but told with a new lens. Did you catch what story it was? It's the Christmas story. Now, this isn't the Christmas story that you grew up with. This isn't silent night, holy night, walking around with candles. No, this story has a dragon and a child who's about to be eaten and consumed and a woman crying out in labor. So we're familiar with the story because we've heard it before, but we haven't heard it quite like this, and so it, it invites us to consider a story we're familiar with, with a new lens and gives us new language to read something in a new way. So let's break down the symbolism and then let's work through chapter 12. The vision that we first see is the birth of Jesus through this symbolic imagery. And we, we see a woman giving birth to the Messiah. We know the Messiah is Jesus. We're told uh, in Psalm two, seven through 12, that a messiah is coming and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron so john is borrowing from the database he's pulling back information god is pulling from his hebrew bible his book and he's saying hey remember that prophecy it's my son so who is the woman that's giving birth to jesus well if you ask someone uh, from a catholic background they'll tell you it's mary but it's not mary it's bigger than that. Because the symbolism that we're told of this woman, we were told that she's, got, she's uh, clothed with the sun, that there's a moon under her feet, and that there are 12 stars all around her. And this is a pullback to Genesis 37.9, when Joseph had a dream that the sun and the moon, his father and his mother and the 12 stars, the tribes of Israel, would bow down to him. This woman symbolizes the people of God. And we're going to find out later in this chapter that the woman who gave birth to the Messiah is also giving birth to new, pe- new, new believers, followers of Jesus Christ, ones who would follow the Lamb. So this woman symbolizes the people of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. OK? Um, This kind of imagery was used, we talked about this uh, in our men's Bible study on Wednesday night, this kind of imagery is used also by Paul in Romans 11 when he's trying to explain the people of God as an olive tree. And we talked about lampstands and olive trees as the people of God last week in Revelation chapter 11, but Paul's imagery is that there is this cultivated olive tree and some of the branches weren't producing fruit, and so they were trimmed off, and Gentile branches were grafted in. But it's still the same tree. It's God's people. And this woman is symbolizing God's people just like the tree symbolizes, symbolizes God's people, just like the temple, or the, the, um, the lampstand symbolizes God's people. It's all the same imagery communing one thing, and that is God has his They are sealed, they're protected, and they have a mission. And that mission is to spread the good news of Jesus Christ so that more people can be grafted into that tree. So we see that this woman, with all the symbolism of God's people, gives birth to a Messiah. And she is in great pain, crying out in agony because of all of the years of suffering and promise that it took to actually get to Christ's birth. There was the exile, there were foreign nations, there was idolatry, there were many years of great pain in order to give birth to this promise. So we see that the first half of this is symbolic imagery of the birth of Jesus. But in this vision, there's another character, not just the woman and the Messiah, there's this other character, and he's called the dragon. Now the dragon is Satan, but what's interesting We'll get through this um, further in the vision. John tells us that the Satan, uh, excuse me, that the dragon is the same creature as the serpent back in Genesis. What's fascinating about the serpent is that this serpent <clears throat> has grown a little bit over the years. He was just a little serpent in the in, in the Garden of Eden, but now he's a full-blown dragon. And we're told that this dragon has seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. And we've discussed before about the importance of heads and horns and crowns. These speak to things like power, authority. And so John is communicating in a very vivid way that over the years, Satan has amassed an incredible amount of power. He has garnered authority. He has convinced nations to join his side. He has convinced the leaders of nations to join his side. He has entire economic structures around the world under his power. He is tempting mankind with all manner of sin. He's got multiple heads, multiple horns, and multiple crowns. Meaning somebody gave him those crowns. Mankind has been giving their authority over to the dragon for thousands of years. And so this dragon, is, we're, we're told, has all of this earthly authority. But not just that. We're told that his tail swept the heavens and pulled a third of the stars down. And that's a familiar story with us. We know that when Satan, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from from heaven like lightning, what he described included this great deception of almost a third of the angels in heaven. When Satan was kicked out of heaven, he didn't just leave, he took a third of the angels with him, and those angels are now fallen angels, and we call them demons. So now we're told that this massive serpent who's become a dragon doesn't just have all this power and these horns and these crowns. He's got an army, a demonic army at his bidding. And he's working behind the scenes. And one of the things that he wants to do with all this power that he's amassed is he wants to kill the promised Messiah. Now, we're told that he's unsuccessful because the child escaped after the attempted murder. God's people fled into the wilderness. So we're told that the child escaped, ascended up into heaven. That's Jesus ascending and taking his throne. So when Jesus ascends and sits on the throne, the people of God flee into the wilderness to survive. Now what is the wilderness? The wilderness is what the wilderness has always been. The wilderness is the place where God protects and provides for his people while they go through trials and tribulations. God's people originally spent 40 years in the wilderness, but while they were there, God's providing breakfast for them every day. Water's pouring out of a rock. They've got direction. They've got a pillar of fire by day, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. They've got God's presence out in the wilderness. They're not without. All they have to to do is just follow God, Just, just believe and have their faith in God. That's all they got to do. And their enemies, they just just crumble before them. Some of them are just so afraid when they walk into town, they just, we give up, we give up. When they do show up to fight, all they have to do, they don't even pull their swords all they do is they just circle a city seven times, blow some horns, and the city just crumbles. That's the kind of power they're operating with in the wilderness. So this isn't um, God's people on the defensive. This is God's people running towards God. When the wilderness is used symbolically, what he's saying is that the people, have got, the people of God have run to a place that is the opposite of the city, Babylon. Now, you're going to see a contrast when you, as we move through this book. You won't see it today because we won't get into it until the next couple chapters. But this isn't the only woman that we'll see. The woman is God's people, but that's not the only woman. We're also going to meet this woman called the Whore of Babylon. And she is representative of all of the people of the earth who have been swayed and follow the way of the dragon. And we find that she has this great city that she set up called Babylon. And Babylon isn't just a location, it's not just a city, it's it's every city and no city. It is what the entire earth has become, corrupt, vile, filled with idolatry, filled with sexual immorality. And so in John's vision, he's giving us a contrast. There There are the dragon's people and where they live and there are God's people and where they live. And God's people don't live in the city. They don't take part in that sexual immorality. They don't take part in that idolatry. They find their strength in the wilderness, not by buying the things that the dragon's selling. You follow me? And the 1260 days, well, we talked about this last week. That has a tie to a literal period of time where Elijah is wandering in the desert. It has a literal period of time where at the end of days, the people of God will suffer tribulation. It also breaks down into three and a half years or 42 months. It's a number figure that has a literal tie to some event in history. But it also, because of what it's tied to, has a symbolic meaning. So when you read 1260 days, it could mean a literal 42-month period, or it could mean a number that's symbolic of a period of time that people will suffer trials and tribulations, but also be provided for by God. It's this number that says like 15 different things all in a number. Do you get it? So, what he's saying here is that the child escaped the attack of the dragon, took his seat in heaven, and the people of God went out of the city into the wilderness, and they received nourishment. They escaped the attacks of the dragon, they escaped the city of Babylon, and they are being nourished by the king. Let's continue. <clears throat> Verse 7. It says now war arose in heaven michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven thank god because we're told in the book of job that regularly satan came before the throne to accuse god's people of things Verse 9 says, the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. All right, so the vision continues as the child ascends into heaven. The next thing that we see is that this breaks out a full-blown war in heaven. Because now the one with the authority isn't Satan who comes before the throne to accuse sinful mankind of all their corruption. Now the one with all authority is the one who is risen from the dead, who has conquered sin and forgiven mankind of their sin. And now Satan can't come freely to accuse you because your sin has been forgiven. And this breaks a war out in heaven. And the war invites, it, it, it involves the angels of heaven, it involves Satan and all of his demons, and guess who won? It ain't the dragon. The dragon got his rear end kicked and he was cast down to the earth. All of his access to heap shame and accusation on you before the throne of God has been removed. There is no more free access before God Almighty for the accuser of the brethren to hold anything against God's people because there is a new sheriff in town, the Lamb who was slain. So his demons and him, the dragon and the demons are cast down to earth, and a great victory has been won. And what happens after a great victory? People worship. Go to verse 10. It says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. And the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. There's two prominent places in scripture where we see that Satan has access to accuse the brethren. One is in Job 1, 6 through 12. I mentioned that one before. The other one's in Zechariah 3, 1, where we see the priest standing next to Satan, and Satan is accusing him because his clothes are covered in dirt. Verse 11 says, They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. How has the accuser been overcome when the people of God know their testimony? This is, look, this is so... Huge. This is even in my notes, but this needs to be like a little side point for you. One of the most powerful ways to combat the accusations and depression that, that seeps into your mind that you are not worthy, God does, is not interested in you, you have to become more familiar with your testimony. Because once you know what God has brought you from, then you have something to reference back to When the accuser comes knocking because while he doesn't have access to heaven we've been told he's been cast down to earth and one of his favorite games to play is to isolate pick off and start whispering in your ear well you combat that by knowing your testimony for they love their lives not unto death that's another important part because many of us love our lives but not those who overcome Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you will dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So the great dragon has been cast down to earth And salvation has come to the earth. Worship is breaking out all over the earth because God's people who have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony are spreading this good news to all corners of the earth. Are you seeing what's happening here? God is giving John context vision for what has happened before and what is happening in the future. Why are the nations raging? Because there's a dragon fueling the war why are things so bad why does mankind love darkness so much well because all mankind is born into sin and satan takes advantage of that by preying on our carnal nature we'll get into that in a minute but what i want you to see is god giving john this vision to help him understand the things that are taking place on the earth and the things that are taking place on the earth is that God's people are overcoming and spreading the gospel, and the dragon is furious. The heavens are rejoicing, but woe to the earth, because the dragon has come down, and he knows his time is short. What does the dragon do when he comes down? Go to verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given Two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. That's a year, another year, and a half a year. It's three and a half years. So this number, 1260, three and a half, 42 It has ties to a literal period of time, but it's also symbolic representing a period of trials and tribulations where God's people discover God's provision in those trials and tribulations. The serpent poured out water like a river of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon poured out from its mouth. And the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now, depending on your translation, that last line is either verse 18, it's attached to verse 17, or it's the the first half of 13.1, but I'm reading from the ESV and it's attached to 17, so I'm just including it, that this chapter ends with him going and standing on the sea. And we'll find out next week that from the sea, the chaos, he pulls out allies to help him with his task because he's so furious. But what we find is that since the dragon has no access in heaven, he starts making war here on earth. And the first thing he makes war against is the people of God the woman. Now, I think that if we're just going through this broad timeline wise, we're probably at this point in the vision around verse 13, we're probably at the church age. This would cover everything from the resurrection of Jesus to when he returns again. I told you that the woman is representative of God's people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And before Christ was born, was born, we we see the woman giving birth to the Messiah and after that we see the woman now giving birth to the saints. So it's the same people of God, but in both situations, Old Testament and New Testament, God is always protecting and providing for his people in the same place, the wilderness. So what is he saying to his people? Come out of the city. Quit living in the city. Not I'm not saying no, literally live in the city although some cities. (laughs) The idea is that city represents the pinnacle of what Babylon is about. It's the hub where all mankind amasses and they experiment in sin. Out in the wilderness is where God provides because you don't have mankind providing for you you have to lean on God's provision. And so what we see here is that when Satan comes down to earth and starts making war on the people of God, the people of God are protected in the same way they have been always protected. We see there's these two wings. We know that from Psalm 55, one 8 David talks about being saved by these two wings. Wings. We know that in Isaiah 40, verse 27 to 31, that um, those who are weary can mount up with wings like eagles. There is this imagery in the Hebrew Bible that gives us a way of thinking about how God can pull you out of your mess and can provide for you in places of deficiency. When you are weak, he is strong. Why? Because in the wilderness, he provides for you. And in in the wilderness, you have to rely on the earth. If you think about what God did with the Old Testament woman when she was brought out of slavery, how did God conquer Egypt? It was by using the earth to close in the oceans and literally drown the entire nation. What happened in the wilderness when A group of Israelites thought that it was good to disobey God, to steal things, to hide things, to rebel against him. We're told that an entire, like the sons of Korah, that literally the earth opened up and swallowed them. So we're seeing this imagery that everything at God's uh, disposal, the earth, his provisions, his creation, spiritual provision, nothing is off the table for the way that he provides for God's people in wilderness trial times that all of that is wrapped up in the woman fled to the wilderness is not that powerful the way he uses that imagery and so at the end we find that the tactics of the dragon when he attacks God's people as a whole always come to nothing he pours out lies and accusations like a river from his mouth but every time they come out it's like the earth just swallows it up and God's people just seem to be protected there is no reason why 12 guys from a tiny little town in the middle east should be the reason why we are gathered here worshiping the king today this should have been over a long time ago But it just seems like with every round of attack, the church gets stronger and stronger and stronger. So the enemy changes his tactics. If he can't go against the church or the group of people, verse 17, he went off to make war on her offspring. So if the enemy can't attack the church as a whole, what does he do? He attacks the individuals within the church. He tries to drive a wedge. And this tactic has been pretty successful over the years. Because if you want to take out a church, all you have to do is tempt the leader into isolation. Tempt him with celebrity, or sexual immorality, or abundance, or that proclivity he has for anger. And then all of a sudden, he gets exposed. The media latches on, and now we've got another conspiracy or we've got another reason for people to leave the church. If you want to attack the family, feed the father pornography in silence. If you want to destroy a family, convince the mother in silence that she has given up a good life To raise these kids who don't even love her. To love a husband who doesn't want her. That, man, if she had just picked a different path and then send a guy along to convince her that he could give her this path. You want to ruin an entire generation? Isolate a child with their phone in their room and let an entire world like and affirm sinful and corrupt behavior without anybody knowing it cull them off from the herd so they're isolated and once you've done that the enemy can let that river pour out of his mouth and it's much easier to drown an individual than it is to drown an entire church this is how he works Now, John is sharing some pretty unbelievably powerful imagery here. It's nothing new. I think everything I've said here is kind of like, oh yeah, okay, the way you say it that way, that makes sense. It's nothing new, but it certainly is a new lens. It's a new way to think about things. It's a new way to talk about things. It's a new way to read the scripture. And what we're told is that while we know sin is a reality, while we know that we have been born into sin and our flesh struggles with it, and literally there is a war raging on the inside of you. First um, Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There is a war within your soul against your own fleshly desires, but John tells us that that isn't the only war that is being waged. There is another war. There is a heavenly war. There is a dragon, and he has an army. And he has many heads and horns and crowns. And if you pretend like the only war that has to be fought is with your own flesh, then you're ignoring the reality from God's word that there is another war waging And the primary tactic of that enemy is to prey on the war that's already raging within you. See, the enemy is not interested. The dragon doesn't want you to come and bow down to the dragon. That's not his strategy. His strategy is to get you to take your eyes off Jesus. He wants what he always has wanted, and that is to corrupt mankind from the inside out, to expose mankind as a fraud and ungrateful, not worthy of God's love and attention. So how does he do that? He isolates, and once he isolates, he preys on the natural sinful desires that you already have. This is the way he works. Now we're told in Ephesians 6, 10-18 that one of the ways to fight against this is to put on the full armor of God. That there is power in a belt of truth, in a sword of the Spirit, in a helmet of salvation, in a breastplate of righteousness. That these things that God gives His people for protection, you should be wearing on a regular basis, Figuratively. You need to know the Word of God so you can use the Word of God. You need to walk in righteousness to protect your heart. The idea that God has saved you when you're walking around salvation protects your mind against the attacks of the enemy. But we're told in Ephesians 6 10 through 18 that we put this on to stand against the schemes of the devil. And my question is what are the schemes? And the answer is the schemes are exactly what I just told you. His scheme, His plan, is to take advantage of the fact that you are already weak in this area and you are a sucker for the temptation that comes your way. What do I mean? I mean that if you're a sucker for gossip, the dragon will come and whisper in your ear. If you like As my daughter says, if you like hearing the tea, if you love hearing the gossip, if you love listening to what's new, guess what the dragon has no shortage of for you? Did you hear what so and so did? Did you hear what this person said? Have you heard what they've saying about this or about you? Maybe gossip isn't your thing, maybe You're looking to numb the pain of your childhood. The dragon has a whole pharmacy for that. He loves selling you things to numb the pain. Are you in an unhappy marriage? Are you looking for a way out of a relationship? Well, the dragon, he's got options for you. Are you looking to run the show and call your own shots and be your own boss? Are you looking to make your own money and do whatever you want with it without anybody telling you what to do? Are you wanting to set your own rules in your own life? The dragon has got an unbelievable opportunity for you. What the dragon does is he preys on what you're already weak at and he exploits it. So the question as we close today, if this is the imagery that John is giving us, that there is a war raging in your soul against your flesh, and there is a war raging around you in the heavenlies, where the dragon is trying to make war against God's people, and he does it by isolating them and preying on what they're already weak at. How do you combat this? Are you ready for this? Put your flesh to death. I've lost count of how many people have called me asking for prayer because, man, I just feel like I'm just being bombarded by Satan. Well, I'm not saying you're not. I'm not saying you are. But I am saying that there is one surefire way to remove the power that the enemy holds over you. Put to death the things that you are weak in. If you're a sucker for gossip, repent of gossip and stop listening to gossip. Listen, if you're a sucker for pornography, let me help you out. This is the easiest way to overcome it. Stop looking at pornography. (laughs) Put your flesh to death. If you can't control your tongue and you struggle with fits of anger, stop talking. Like, Let me tell you what happens if you put this to practice, when you put your sin to death. The next time the enemy comes knocking and tries to tempt your flesh with something that you don't give into anymore, it would be the same as him trying to tempt you with something that you would have never considered. It has no effect, and you cut the knees out from under the dragon of the way that he tempts you. I want you to think for a minute, just a quick thought experiment. Think about something that you would never, ever struggle with in a million years. Something that's like laughable. Now I want you to think about something that you do struggle with. Can you feel the emotional tension between those two? If the enemy tempts you with one, God, I'm such a sucker for that. But the other one, (laughs) that's ridiculous. I would never struggle with that, ever. What you've got to get to is that the thing you struggle with carries the same response to the thing that you've never struggled with. That's putting your flesh to death so that there is nothing that can be tempting for you. So dragon isn't behind everything. Revelation 12 tells us that there is a war raging and he's probably behind more things than you can imagine. So what do we do with that? Well we thank God that John has given us new imagery and new words and new metaphors for seeing our mission in this world. We have been given a gift in this book, and that's why we're told that whoever reads it out loud receives a blessing. Because you've heard the Christmas story, but you've never heard it like this. But once you do, you can't stop seeing everything like this. Now, I'm telling you, there is a pendulum swing here. You can run one, in one direction like everything's the devil. I see demons everywhere. No, 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 come on back, man. You're too far. Back <laughs> this way. But you can run in the other direction. Like, man, there's no such thing as that. The only thing I'm struggling with is my own flesh. I bet you're getting pounced by that, aren't you? Because there is an enemy who's pouring gasoline on that, and he's setting it on fire just to watch you squirm. Revelation is an invitation for us to consider that this world we live in can be viewed from a completely different lens and it can empower your mission like you've never imagined. Let's pray.